Everybody, if you have your you have your Bible, let's turn to Judges chapter 11. Okay, chapter 11 in Judges. We're actually going to be starting where we left off last time. So verse 17 of chapter 10, but that's right at the end of the chapter. So finding Judges 11 will get you where you need to be. The sermon for tonight is titled, Prelude to a Tragic Vow, God the Only Judge. And so if you're familiar with this book, Judges, or maybe you can tell from my title, the story in Judges is about to get pretty dark. It's about to get, it's already been kind of dark, hasn't it? But it's going to get very dark. Things for Israel since the passing of Joshua have essentially been trending evil, trending downward, and they've been increasingly getting worse as we have seen. There's already been some graphic things, right? We've talked about some of the graphic things or we've seen some of the graphic things that have happened, like Ehud with the the blade and getting covered by the fat of that one ruler, uh, Shamgar's ox goad. By the way, there's a movie coming out about Shamgar. I would recommend probably passing it. It's not, it's going to be totally, there might be. um, There's going to be not much biblical evidence in there. Uh, Jail and the tent peg, you know, there's been a lot of, I don't know, graphic things we've seen down, seen at least, and it's been bad in Israel with the cycle that we've observed. Yeah? We're going to be at, uh, we're going to start at chapter 10, verse 17, Henry. So it's been bad in Israel, and but it's about to get worse as we head into the closing chapters of the book. We're more than halfway done with Judges now. There's there's 21 chapters in the book, and so we're approaching the, that middle mark, or we're through that middle mark now. And what we've seen is that Israel has failed to do what God has asked them to do in the land that he has given to them. But this was all according to God's plan. Um, he's showing them and us that, and everyone that salvation and enjoying blessing from God must ultimately come from him. And we can't obtain it ourselves. So the text we have for tonight, God is showing us those things. And he's doing it in light of some things that have already taken place, some things that have already transpired. So just a brief recap, and then we'll get to our passage for tonight, but it's a long passage that we have to read. So if you remember back, uh, things started really taking a turn for the worse after Gideon. People wanted to make Gideon king. They were just, they were becoming just like the people that they were living amongst, the people they were supposed to kick out of the land, and they all had kings. And so now Israel is wanting to set up Gideon as their king, but Gideon does the right thing. He refuses that, and he says, no, the Lord God is your king. But then he kind of ends up living as a king anyways, even though he renounced the title of it. And then one of his sons, Abimelech, a son born by a woman who wasn't his wife, he ends up killing all of his brothers, all 68 of his brothers except for one, and he killed them on a single stone, almost like a sacrifice, right? Like you would take an offering to a false god when you kill them on this single stone, and that's what he does to all of his brothers. Abimelech becomes a self-appointed king, and God's people suffer under him. Then after him come two judges. God gives a time of peace with them, and then again, Israel... Uh, sins and God rebukes them, telling them that they should cry out to the gods whom they've been worshiping instead of him. Uh, the gods that they have, in essence, you know, committed whoredom with uh, by leaving the God who saved them out of Egypt. And so he mentions seven gods of these seven different people. So in other words, like a full rebellion from Israel, a complete rebellion from Israel at this point. And Yahweh has become impatient over their misery, we read in 10, verse 17, or 16, I mean. Not that Yahweh changes like we do, not like he's impatient or grieves like we are, because God doesn't change. He doesn't have emotions or passions in the same way that we do. 
there are mechanisms that change his disposition. But the point being that Yahweh was going to do something now because the condition of Israel um, was once again at a point where his kindness would be elevated and highlighted. And so he would show mercy. And he's going to do it by teaching them that he alone is God and judge. So let's read. And again, this is a lot we're reading tonight because of the flow of the story. So just bear with me. But this is the word of the Lord. And then we'll pray afterwards, beginning at verse 17, chapter 10. Then the Ammonites were called to arms. And they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gileadad was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us, if, you will, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to, to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and then came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they went also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom into the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the, of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hands of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. And then they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So the Lord, the God of Israel, disposed of the Amorites before his people, Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Kamash, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in, in Aror and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? 
I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he, that he sent to him. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father heaven, that was a lot to read. We pray that you'd help us to think rightly about it, uh, that you would help us remember it, Lord, and that we would benefit from the reading of your word, that you would instruct us, Lord, by the Spirit whom you provide. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So there's a lot going on here, but let's just begin at the beginning of our passage. Uh, God's way of dealing with Israel and dealing with their repentance is going to coincide with the raising up of another judge. But in order for that judge to be raised up, God is going to do that in the context of another trial, of another tragedy that comes before them, from the standpoint of the Israelites at least. The people who had been conquering Israel would be raised up again. If you remember um, in verse 17, we read the the Ammonites were called to arms. Then, it says, uh, meaning after Israel's repentance to God and God's impatience towards them over their misery. So the Ammonites come against Israel. Once again, they've been doing this for the past 18 years. We talked about that last time. And the Ammonites are now in Gilead, and they're about to strike the Israelites at Mitzvah. Mitzvah is a is a watchtower essentially. It's the name of it means a tower. It's probably like on the outside of Gilead, within five miles essentially from when the Ammonites had encamped and they're about to you know cause a war on the Israelites again. But there's a problem here, isn't there? the The people are gathered, but there's no one to lead them. They are a people without a leader. There is a leadership vacuum at this point. And this is in part punishment on them for their sin. They don't have a judge at this point. They should know God is their king. That should be number one in their mind. This is theocratic Israel, and they have neglected him and brought his wrath upon them because of the covenant that they were in with Yahweh. So here is this trial that they're in now. Nevertheless, Yahweh is going to use this trial to bring about good for them. And we always need to remember this, friends. When trials and tragedy come before us, when it comes before God's people, it also is the means by which he is sanctifying us and conforming us to himself. Now, it's a little bit more complex than that in our text because this is the nation of Israel. And as we've noted, they as a nation are in covenant with God and what we call now the old covenant. The old covenant didn't promise salvation. It didn't promise eternal blessing. The old covenant is that is the covenant made up of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. So up at this point, the Davidic covenant hasn't, doesn't even exist yet. That part doesn't exist. But they've, God is with this special people, Israel, through promises made to Abraham and to Moses. It was a temporal covenant that contained in it shadows and types of the promise of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. The old covenant was temporal. It's not eternal. It was for a specific people at a specific place in a specific time, and it promised temporal blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. But there were some, perhaps even many, within the old within old covenant Israel that were also in the covenant grace covenant of grace and did have salvation, even though that covenant wasn't fully made known to them yet. It's not fully made known to people until Jesus goes to the cross and, and thereby after that. There were people in Old Covenant Israel that certainly had eternal blessing in Christ because even before Jesus was incarnated and went to the cross, those saved even before Jesus did that were properly said to be in Christ. 
There's no other way to be saved other than through the work of Christ. Either we look back to it from our standpoint now, or people who were saved before Jesus did that, were looking forward to it in faith. And so when God brings this judgment upon Israel, which comes in the form of a tragedy or this trial by another nation warring against them, we see in it a type of the way that he deals with his saved people, those in the covenant of grace, those that truly have salvation, in other words. Because what we will see happen through this, is, this trial is that God blesses them out of it. He conforms them to himself once again as a nation, although it's very messy, as we'll see next week especially. You know, a type, the types in the Old Covenant and that we are reading about here in Judges and in many places in the Old Testament, they're not exactly the same as the fulfillment of those types. They're not as good as the reality. But God does do the same thing for us today, usually on an individual level, but sometimes also it can affect all of us at the same time, like perhaps in light of a wicked government, where that comes as form of judgment upon you know all of God's people in that under that government. But just think today, every time after the cross, um, Christians haven't been free from trials, and they don't come to us because we've sinned often, though God does discipline us for our sins as a loving father should, but sometimes trial and tragedy just comes to you. I think of the parent like who receives a phone call about you know their child, that their child died. That happens to believers. Sometimes, you know, it's cancer or whatever is whatever the trial is for you. Christians aren't immune or free from serious trials like that in this life. The good news for us, though, you guys, that these things aren't meaningless. Just like this tragedy ends up bringing about blessing for the nation of Israel, the trials we endure, God perseveres us through them. He builds up our faith through them. He conforms us to Christ and even that means and even means them for our good and for his glory. We read in Romans eight. We shouldn't go out looking for trials by any means. That would be weird. And that's not the thing to do as, as Christians. Uh, it's perverse even, but we can patiently endure trials knowing that they aren't meaningless, knowing that they are bringing about future blessing. Even though at the time they're difficult, we can even by faith learn to rejoice in them, in God through them by the faith that God supplies to us. We can rejoice in all things as the Apostle Paul instructs in Philippians and in First Thessalonians. And the only way we can do that is by faith in knowing that these trials aren't meaningless that God is in fact sovereign and that these are part of his purposes in bringing about blessing to our lives and strengthening our faith and conforming us more to Christ. I mean just think of you know the writers right now even and the trial that they're that the trial that's beheld Sandy for the last 5 years. Is it 5 years ago Caleb when you ran into her at the thing? That I mean that was when she found out about it. That wasn't you that did anything to her. Yeah, if anything, Caleb, it was good that that happened because she went to the doctor and maybe it would have been without, maybe it would have been not noticed for a longer period of time. So it is certainly a trial and a tragedy that, that the writers are having to deal with, but God has built up their faith through it and has been glorified through their testimony through it all. That doesn't mean it's been easy. Now, as I was saying, though, this deliverance and blessing through tragedy is a little bit messy for the context of our story here. It's going to be very messy next week, but even tonight, it's messy because who's going to lead them? Where is this judge? Well, God in his wisdom planned all of this so that they might see their sin 
and so that we might be reminded of our sin and our need for God's complete righteousness in place of ours as well. So now Judges flashes back for some years, kind of like in a movie, right, where, uh, where you have a story progressing, but something happened and you need to, so, you need to know some backstory. And so you get like a, a little clip of a, of a previous event, something that hasn't been shown before in the story, a snapshot of the past. So verse 1 in chapter 11 introduces us to the next judge, but he's got somewhat of a questionable past. And it gives us a little bit of that past here. We're told that Jephthah is a mighty warrior. Um, So before we get to the past, we're told that he's a mighty warrior. It's kind of like Gideon, right? Gideon was called the same thing. Gideon was introduced to us as a mighty warrior. But from there, it gets a little complex. Jephthah isn't from a prominent man in Israel like Gideon was. He's the son of a prostitute, and his dad is a Gileadite. And so right away, we should be reminded of a previous storyline. Remember Abimelech from a few weeks ago? Gideon's son was born to a mistress, remember? And we know what he did to his brothers so he could obtain an inheritance. Uh, He killed them all in that single stone, except for one that got away. Well, Jephthah's brothers are certainly aware of that story, or perhaps it's just because they are sinners who don't trust the Lord themselves. So they send Jephthah out from among them. They kick him out of you know their family. They put him out of the land, and they literally tell him, they say that Jephthah won't have an inheritance with them, with his people. So they get rid of him. They don't have a desire to love him. So Jephthah leaves. He goes out into a new region, and he associates himself with a people of I guess you could say like questionable morals. Uh, the, the scripture calls them worthless fellows. Meaning instead, these are people who aren't serving Yahweh. These are people who don't care about honoring God with their lives. These are people who aren't trying to live their lives in such a way that God would be pleased with them. We don't know much about them, but this fact doesn't prevent God from using Jephthah, of course. But it could be in part be the reason that Jephthah does something foolish later on in the story. So at this point, the flashback is done. We're now acquainted with Jephthah. There's a similarity, but a key difference between him and Abimelech and his brothers, but there there are similarities nonetheless. But there's much more that happens to Jephthah and God's plan for his life, because as the story progresses, because of Jephthah's past, he becomes a type of how now Israel is interacting with Yahweh himself. The providence of our God is amazing. If you think about how God works all of this out, look at what transpires. Uh, there's, there's a leadership void in Israel at the time. And what do they do? They reach out to someone that they had previously rejected. And Jephthah knows this, and he calls them on this. The, the elders of Gilead approach him and ask him to be their leader, but Jephthah is more shrewd than that. Look at verse 7, okay? Verse 7 in chapter 11 says, But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? The phrasing, his response to them here is is very similar to how God responds to Israel in chapter 10. There Israel sees that they have a need, and so they cry out to God. But God questions their hearts, and he tells them, remember this, he says, Why are you coming to me now? Why are you coming to me now? Why don't you just serve all these gods who you've been worshiping? Why don't you seek help from those gods that you were chasing? So there's an interesting parallel here. And it seems clear God is wanting Israel to see. He's wanting us to see our sin. He's wanting them to understand what they have done. 
Jephthah is, as it were, despised and rejected. And now, now that they are in trouble, they want him back. That's the same thing that Israel was doing in chapter 10 to Yahweh. But listen, that's not how a person who loves God acts. God isn't just some genie that we can call upon when we're in trouble. We don't just, you know, rub a little bottle when we when we need God because we're in a pinch. God's not some background figure that you can toss aside and then just call upon when he, when it's convenient for you. Certainly, you know, God is the faithful one. But that isn't an excuse for his people to always be unfaithful. Thankfully, our stand with God isn't dependent upon our faithfulness, but on Christ's faithfulness. And God's going to be faithful to Israel in this account because of his faithfulness to his son and also of his faithfulness to his covenant promises. But it isn't because Israel has earned it or deserved it here. No, God's pointing out to them now in the example of Jephthah that they have treated him in the same way as well. They they didn't need God until they until they felt like they needed him. Now, once they need him, now he has to come and do what they want. Well, they're trying to say the same thing to Jephthah. But as I said, Jephthah, she's shrewd. He's got, a, he's got an ability to judge rightly. And so in verse 9, he places the whole interaction in God's hands. He says, if the Lord gives them, meaning the Ammonites, over to me, then I will be your head. You see, he's not leaving it up to himself. He's certainly not leaving it up to the nation of Israel and the Gileadites. He can't and he shouldn't trust them. But the Lord will be the judge, is what he says. And the Gileadites agree to the terms. Now, what happens next is is long, to say it one way. We won't rehash all the details of what's happening in verse 12 to 28. But what's happening in that section is, the, is in the context of a defense of Israel's past, all from Jephthah. And really, it's quite amazing. It's amazing that Jephthah is such a historian, considering his past. I mean, he was kicked out of Israel. He was kicked out of his family's house. He probably didn't learn of God. By the time his brothers got old enough to know that they would get an inheritance, they kicked Jephthah out. Perhaps this was all, um, and then Jephthah hung out with worthless fellows, people who obviously weren't interested in the things of God and the mercies of God to his people in times past. And so perhaps this was all revealed to him from God. I'm not sure. But what you have happening in 12 to 28 is a precursor to the battle that's going to happen in the following verses. Jephthah wants to know why the Ammonites are coming against Israel. What's the reason? And long story short, the Ammonites have a corrupt version of history. They're coming against Israel because they have a a wrong version of what has happened. They think the land belongs to them, but it doesn't. Israel obtained it from God from a different people. Uh, the different people than the Ammonites. And he gives this detailed description that is historically accurate about Israel's journey to the promised land, even pointing out that Balak, do you guys remember who Balak is? The king of, of Moab, the, the donkey that uh, ends up talking as well, in Numbers 23. Um, and, and Balak wants the prophet to curse Israel, and the prophet you know, won't curse Israel. So, he points out that Balak didn't even argue like this or make war against Israel and that they would have a greater right to do so. Not not really at all, really, but still a greater right than the Ammonites to do so. But even they didn't do that. And so he brings up the fact that they had 300 years to make this claim. Why all of a sudden now are they? 
So they have no right to be doing what they're doing. Jephthah knows this. They know this. Now notice verse 24. Let's think about Jephthah's comment here, right? This is part of his defense against the Ammonites as to why they're coming against his land. Verse 24 says, Will you not possess what Kamash, your God, gives you to possess? And all the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. In other words, all that the Lord has given to them from other people. He's, he's dispossessed it from others and then gave it to Israel as a possession. That's what it means by dispossessed. So this is interesting. For one, Kamash is technically not even the god of the Ammonites. It's a Moabite deity. Uh, the, I'm blanking on the name of the god of the Ammonites right now. Starts with an M. I, I, I should have wrote down. Huh? No, that's not, that's not it. Um, and so there's confusion even between, uh, between commentators about what's happening right now. Why is Jephthah mentioning Kamash if he's not the god of the Ammonites? Kamash was technically a Moabite deity. Uh, maybe he's not informed about other people's history as, as his own. Maybe he mentions the Moabites deity because of the region they're in. We don't know. But the interesting thing is that he speaks of this Kamash on the same playing field as he does of his God, on the same playing field as Yahweh. So let's phrase it like this to make it more forceful, okay? He says, Kamash, your God, and the Lord, our God. He says, Kamash, and then a word based off of the root word Elohim, which means God in Hebrew. And then when he speaks of his God, he says, the Lord, which you notice all in caps, right? So when it's all in caps, that means it's Yahweh. That's that's what the, the Hebrew is. And then another version of the same root word that he used for Kamash, Elohim. So you see the parallel. What are we to make of this? Is Kamash a real god? Does God have rival gods that are, you know, fighting against him, that are real in the world, that are, you know, p- potentially giving other people things to possess, just like Yahweh does? Well, the scriptures actually do this quite often. I mean, even in our previous chapter, right, God himself in rebuking Israel mentions seven different gods and tells Israel to seek help uh, from them. Remember, Ezekiel and Yahweh go up against the, um, the worshipers of Baal. The scriptures often speak about other gods as if they are legitimate gods, especially in the Psalms too, right? So, for example, Psalm 82.1 it says, if God has taken his place in the divine council, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So how do we square that with the rest of scripture? When other accounts testify to there only being one God, how do we deal with this in our life when we're confronted with like the Hindus and their pantheon of gods or like the Muslims and their God they say they serve Allah? What are we to think? How do we square this with Isaiah 46, which is going to be our memory verse for next week, and also Isaiah 45, in which God testifies of himself that I am the Lord, there is no God, there is no other God. Or the doxology about Christ of 1 Timothy 1 that says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, what we see is that the scriptures, when, when it talks about these other gods, and this helps us to think about people who in our day worship so-called gods as well, other gods. Um, what the scripture does is acknowledges that men in their rebellion to the true God believe 
that there are other gods. And so God often displays his glory against these false idols by saying this or that, you know, only to have it shown that they are nothing before the one true God. And there's an interesting text in the Psalms that sheds more light on this. Um, uh, turn to Psalm 106. Okay, you can keep your finger in Judges. We'll come back. If you turn to Psalm 106 or digitally get there, however you do it. Yeah, you can't do that. You just hit the back button, depending on your browser, I guess. In this psalm, the, Israel, the psalmist is going over the history of Israel. And so the part in the verses he's going to look at are, is concerning Israel's time in the promised land. So look at verse 34. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. Remember, that was the command given to Joshua and, and even extended into Judges as they were going into the promised land. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. We've been talking about that for the past however many months we've been in this book. The canonization of Israel. Of Israel. Then it says, they served their idols, meaning the idols of the land, which became a snare to them. We've seen that over and over and over again. And then verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. So this psalm is essentially inspired commentary on the book of Judges and beyond. And look at what it calls the, pe- the gods of the people of the land. It calls them idols. It calls them false gods, in other words. And then also, that they sacrifice their, their sons and daughters to demons. So these idols, these Elohim, that we read about here in Judges and, and beyond it, they might also possibly be demons. Demons are, of course, angels that have rebelled against God. They are mightier than people, but they are far, far, far less than God. They're not on the same level as God is. And so it's interesting that Jephthah, because he put, he puts Kamash on the same level, but that's not to say that they actually are, that Kamash is on the same level as Yahweh. He's just speaking in such a way that they would understand. And Yahweh, God is speaking to, through him in such a way that people would understand. The reality is, is that if we're trying to put God and demons and angels in general, and people all on, a, all on a scale, God would be on a totally different and higher line than both demons and people. The the gap between what it means to be a person and a demon is much, much closer than what it means from for a, a demon and God. Considering the one between demon and God is infinite. Is infinite, that's right. And the, that's, that's the point, is that God is creator, everything else is creation. Everything else is cre- is creature. God is the only creator. Everything else is creature. No matter if it's a, an angel or whatever, you know, it might be an angel that's fallen in rebellion against God. It's all created by God. So God is on a totally other playing field. And so these gods that we read about in Scripture, which are opposed to the one true God, are not gods at all. They're idols or demons. And the same goes for anything claiming to be God. Or worship as God today other than Yahweh. You might think of even the, the history of Mormonism and Mormoni, this angel um, that they see, it it seems more likely to be you know, a, a, a demon. So Jephthah actually knows this, I think, even though he just said, why don't they appeal to Kamash? Look down at verse 27, back in chapter 11. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. 
The key here is to see what Jephthah doesn't say. He doesn't say, let Yahweh and Kamash judge between us. He leaves it all to the Lord. You see that there in the text, right? All caps, L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the only judge. He's going to be the one who will vindicate Jephthah and Israel or the Ammonites. There's none that can match him, friends. God is the only judge. And that's the same for us today as well. God will judge people for their actions. That's one of the things we're to notice in his relationship to the people in the Old Covenant. God will judge even now and as it stands. If if we have to claim our own works, our own decisions before God to justify us before him, then we are lost. We are without hope. But God has provided a way for us to be righteous in his sight, a way that isn't dependent upon our own obedience, because our obedience isn't good enough. We all have guilt in Adam, the first man. And so God sent another Adam, another man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, to live in our place. He was fully faithful to all of the laws of God, and he died a death that he didn't deserve since he never sinned so that he could declare people righteous through faith in him and his works on our behalf. Because of Christ, because of the Son of God, God is able to judge as holy and righteous and therefore accepted in his sight people because of the work that Christ has done. Apart from Christ, though, we might as well appeal to Kamash if it were possible. But that's an empty will. There's no hope there. There's no hope in any anyone or anything other than in God himself. There's none greater than Yahweh. And so we have this text in Judges to remind us of these things. God will judge the world. Not a single one of us in this room, not a single one of you will escape judgment from the Lord. That's, whether you believe it or not, that is what God has said. God will judge the world. He promised to do so, Acts 17, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So as we read this text in Judges, we're made to think of the judgment that is coming. There's judgment that God is going to pronounce here in Judges. Uh, Jephthah is reminding people about it. But that should do more than just be a history lesson for us. It should remind us that God will judge everyone. God will judge between the Ammonites and Israel. God will judge all of the world. Will you stand on your own merits or will you plead the merits of Christ? Not everyone in, this, in the world gets to hear that warning even, but you are. We've heard it. That's the mercy of the Lord. And it was the mercy of the Lord to the Ammonites for Jephthah to do what he did. But look at how they responded, verse 28. They did not listen to him. And so the story progresses. But Jephthah is no Christ, as we'll see next week, though God does use him to deliver the people. A true deliverance, though, deliverance from death, deliverance from the guilt of our sin, deliverance and that redemption that helps us to even understand that tragedy and trial is part of God's plan to bless us. That only comes from Christ. It only comes from being united to Christ. So look to him, you guys. Uh, look to him always. Seek him while he may be found. That's the gospel according to Judges. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the way in which you have worked the history of redemption testifies to your power and to your might. That you would work a story 
on a national scale between two different groups of people, uh, groups of people amassing thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people uh, working between all of these individuals so that we might see a picture of your holiness. Uh, we might be reminded of the fact that you are the only judge and from there might be cast upon the knowledge that only Christ can save us from the wrath that we deserve. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rightly understand your word, that especially as we read the Old Testament, that you would not uh, let us just see it as simply a record of history, but that you would help us to understand how it is that you are revealing to us Christ and our desperate need of, of him and the gospel that you have proclaimed, the gospel that you developed as a plan and a purpose to bring you glory from even before the foundation of the earth. We pray that you would help us to to trust you, Lord, and that you would cause us to really think about your faithfulness and how it is that you are better than anything in this world that we could possibly desire. Give us over to worshiping you and seeking you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.